Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, and we left off in verse 8, so we'll pick up the reading in verse 9. And just going to look at verses 9, 10, and 11 today. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And Father, we're thankful that You've brought us into that pleasure and we're able to sing about that today. And Lord, as we just sang, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would abide with us, that You would enter into this time frame and, and minister to hearts and make this Word real to us and our Savior real to us. And Lord, encourage, convict, Lord, draw, help. Lord, we confess our absolute need of You in this hour. We pray You'd exalt the Lord Jesus Christ who's worthy, as we just sang, to be praised. We ask these things in His name. Amen. So, after his uh, great opening statement here, this gospel summary statement of Mark that we looked at in the first message, he introduces to us John Baptist here, actively engaged in preaching and baptizing and preparing the way for the Messiah. Um, we covered that in our, our first two messages, where the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, gets introduced to us in, in an indirect way in those passages. However, in very quick fashion, as Mark is known to do, he suddenly, directly introduces us to the Lord Jesus here in verse 9, who at this point in his life, he has left his hometown of Nazareth. He's about 30 years of age, and he's now reached the point of beginning his earthly ministry in the water. And perhaps you've read this event in the Gospels. I trust you have probably many times, most of you. But have you ever thought to yourself, why? I mean, what is this all about? Why does this happen? Well, I, I trust you'll find this message helpful in giving you a better understanding as to the why this event took place. And uh, I, I find it quite fascinating. This scene is loaded. You think the Old Testament has types and shadows and figures, and this is loaded with symbolism. And you know this this time of Jesus being baptized by John. It's the only the only time recorded in Scripture where Jesus and John are are found together. And and the encounter here is 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 a bit striking because we find Jesus coming to subject himself to John's baptism. And why is that striking? Well, because as we looked last time there in verse four. Verse 4 points out to us that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And even though we don't get the understanding at this point in John's, in Mark's narrative rather, that Jesus was sinless, that He was perfectly righteous, nonetheless, that is the testimony of Scripture. 2 Thessalonians 2, or 2 Thessalonians, or Thessalonians, 2 Corinthians 5.21 he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus knew no sin at all. That is his, he had no, no personal sin to be found in his person at all, whatsoever. No, at no point in his life, there was not one action, one deed, one thought, one word that came out of his mouth, one thought that entered his mind that any man or any demon or angel or God himself could accuse him of wrongdoing. He was perfectly spotless. The Hebrew writer says, He was tempted in every respect like we are, yet was without sin. He later testifies that Jesus was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, in a league of His own. Peter calls Him a lamb without blemish or spot. And then he says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. John says, you know, He appeared to take away sins and in Him there is no sin. Jesus was without sin from the womb all the way to the grave. Sinless. A sinless, perfect, unblemished Lamb till He reaches that cross. So that provokes the question, doesn't it? What on earth is Jesus doing standing in the waters of repentance? All four Gospel writers capture this. And there's only a handful of events that that get captured in in all four Gospels. This is one of them. Most of them surround Jesus' death. But here in Jesus' baptism, all four Gospels record the events or at least those surrounding it. Verse 9, Mark says, "...in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan." Why? I mean, even John, even John's a bit startled by this. Now, Mark spares us the, the details here. There's, there's a short verbal exchange at least that Matthew captures for us. If you turn real quick to Matthew chapter four, uh, chapter three, we'll, we'll look at this. Keep your finger there, in Mark. We're going to come right back to it. But just Matthew chapter three and, and, and verse fourteen, he says John would have prevented him. John Baptist, that is. He would have prevented Jesus saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to Me? But Jesus answered, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then He, John, consented. John's taken back by this notion of Jesus being baptized by Him. He would have prevented Him, it says. Lord, I need to be baptized by you. Jesus, something, there's something doesn't seem right about this. Why is Jesus in the water requesting baptism of John when he has absolutely no sin to repent of? Well, Jesus comes to these waters to identify with those who do have sin, you and I, to identify with those he came to save. In verse 15, Jesus is saying, yes, John, I understand your hesitation. And it is a bit odd. From the surface, it doesn't seem fitting. But this is a very fitting illustration of how I'm going to fulfill all righteousness. My ministry will begin with baptism and my ministry will end with baptism. 
It will begin with the baptism here in water, symbolizing the life of the Spirit with which my ministry will be fully saturated with and carried out by. But this baptism also foreshadows a baptism into death, wherein I will be fully immersed into the sins of my people of whom I've come to redeem with my blood. Just think, just think about the nature of John's baptism. John's baptism was symbolically illustrating for us the washing away of sin. As people came in demonstration of the repentance, subjecting themselves to this baptism, all those sins, all their sins were washed off into that water, as it were. And Jesus, the sinless, unblemished Lamb of God, steps down into all that sin-filled water and immerses Himself in it. Certainly, that image is pointing to the very end of His ministry where He will take all the sins of His people upon Himself. You can turn back to Mark. Well, I shouldn't have to say it, but I will for the sake of clarity. As, you know, baptism is certainly a subject that there's a lot of confusion. Let me just clarify. All that I just stated was in the vein of symbolism. The act of baptism itself, be it John's mode, be it post-Pentecost Christian mode, us, the, the mode in which we were baptized, neither of these acts do anything whatsoever in taking away anyone's sin. They're symbolic pictures, illustrations. They're, they're metaphorical dramatizations of spiritual truth. In the words of Alistair Begg, that which is pictured in the water is not performed in the water. It's true. All things baptism, we need to be filtered through that lens. But, but in verse 5, we have, we have all Israel coming out because of their guilt. And then here in verse 9, we have one introduced to us who will serve to represent them. In subjecting Himself to John's baptism, Jesus is acknowledging Israel's need for repentance and the necessity of God's righteous judgment being carried out because of sin. He enters these waters in the wilderness, one ready to take the brunt of the judgment for them. This is Jesus identifying with His people. It's, it's like what's said of Moses, right? As Moses led Israel out of that desert, out of the wilderness, through that wilderness, out of captivity, through the wilderness, through the waters, all were baptized into Moses, Paul says, right? In like manner, in the wilderness, and, and through baptism right here, all those who are Christ are being baptized here through Him as Jesus expresses a vicarious uh, Confession of guilt that's not His. It's on the behalf of. That's what that word means. It's on the behalf of others. Our guilt. He's expressing it here. A confession of our own guilt. Jesus, whose repentance as it were was perfect. Absolutely perfect. Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness as a substitute for His people. Jesus' baptism, as I said, foreshadows His death. You recall that statement that, that Luke captures for us in Luke 12.50? I have a baptism to be baptized with. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. 
And then later on in Mark, Jesus turns to His disciples and asks them, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Or be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? He's referring to being plunged into death. Being buried. Not this time by water, but as a crucified man buried in a tomb only to rise in victorious resurrection power. Well, as I mentioned, this is the symbolism here is rich and it's powerful. This scene right here is no doubt a recreation of what we're told was present at creation. The opening words of our Bible, verse 2, paint the scene that we have here. The earth, we have the earth, it's void. It's, it's without form. It's dwelling there in darkness. That's the scene. And we're specifically told that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And right in the midst of that hovering Spirit over the waters, suddenly a voice emerges, right? And the very next words were told, and God said, let there be light. That was the Son of God speaking. The light of the world who spoke all light into existence. Both John 1 and Colossians 1 clearly uh, make that clear to us. So, so, there, so, so there, here you have the, the Son of God in that scene unleashing creative power in the midst of a hovering spirit over water. And brethren, that's exactly what we have in this scene of the Jordan taking place. It's duplicating that. Jesus standing between the water and the heavens being torn open with the hovering Spirit in descending fashion like a dove over that water settling down on He who stands there, the Creator Himself. Now ready to begin His work of a new creation that we spoke of last week through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. The opening words of the Bible capturing the dawn of creation is, was foreshadowing this event right here that took place some three, 4,000 years later. However, the image extends beyond that. I mean, there is a constant thread woven throughout Scripture of this association between the Spirit and water. Water is symbolic of the Spirit. The Spirit's life and the Spirit's work of cleansing. The prophet Ezekiel in the 36th chapter, right in the context of the Lord saying, I will put My Spirit within you. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Jesus, you recall the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says to you, give me to drink. I would, you would have asked Him and I would have given you living water. Further, He says, the water that I give will become in you a, a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus at the Feast of Booths stands up and He cries, whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Marriage, Paul says, is a picture of Christ cleansing and sanctifying His bride with the water of the Word, which is Spirit-breathed. 
Paul speaks of the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Later, Jesus would just straight up tell Nicodemus, Nicodemus, truly, truly, except you're born of the water and the Spirit, you will not enter the kingdom of God. This is another reason why Jesus is standing there before John to be baptized, to underscore all the spiritual realities symbolized in the Spirit and water. But there's more. This scene has so many wonderful facets. I mean, I don't think I got them all for sure. Uh, but just something, this is a great passage to muse upon. Jesus' baptism, it, it initiates something, it, it proclaims something, it projects something forward, it projects something backward. Not only, not only does, it, does it show us the realities of the Spirit that are being expressed here, not only does Jesus identify with His people here in these waters, He also identifies with divinity and the One who sent Him. And He does so in Trinitarian fashion. This event puts the triune Godhead on full display. Here we have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's both a visible and an audible witness testifying to Jesus' divinity here. This is a supernatural event that's taken place. Mark tells us in verse 10 that John, he saw the heavens being torn open, the Spirit descending on Him, Jesus, like a dove. That's not something you see every day, right? I mean, it's not. The heavens being torn open. That sounds kind of violent. This is not something, this was very unusual. It was, it was out of the ordinary and significant. We have the heavens being opened and some kind of visible form of the Holy Spirit coming down. This is what John's eyes see. We, and we don't know if it was just visible to John or not. We're not exactly told. All four accounts indicate that John saw heaven opened and he saw a visible descent of the Spirit. The Apostle John says, and John bore witness, John Baptist that is, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him. But He who sent Me to baptize with water said to Me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And this is why John Baptist was proclaiming that back in verse 8. Because the Lord told him, the one whose way you're preparing, he's going to the one that's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, you're going to know who he is because when you see him, I'm going to provide you some visual as evidence of the Spirit descending upon him. Now, I don't want to break your dove-loving hearts, but uh, John didn't see a dove. He didn't actually see a dove. The Holy Spirit didn't suddenly become a shapeshifter and transform into some bird. I think folks tend to get that confused. It's okay. You can still keep your, your doves on your Bible cover. And, but, but Mark says like a dove. Like a dove. He doesn't say John saw a dove. Mark, Mark is simply trying to communicate what or, well he, he's communicating John's own testimony and John's trying to communicate what on earth he just saw I mean 
this is something supernatural that's taking place. And, and John, just like you and I would be, I mean, he's limited with, with his own natural experience and language to be able to explain what he just witnessed. I mean, I mean think about it. It's not like John had a bunch of flying objects to, to choose from. From you know, He had a great repertoire. It's not like he had airplanes and helicopters and, and jet packs and drones and bottle rockets and kites. And Pretty much in John's day, you had clouds and you had birds. Those are the things that are flying about. It wasn't a UFO because John could identify who it was. It was he identified it as the Spirit. What John saw was the Spirit in some, some measure, some visual measure descending from heaven in a manner that was similar to or in look or movement of a dove in its flight or landing behavior. Not, not a sudden like nosedive like a, like a hawk or an eagle going after its prey. This was not some quick, aggressive descent. This was a, a, like a dove, a graceful, gentle, gradual descent very much reflective of, the, of He whom, whom He was going to land. Right? The Lord Jesus Himself. You know, and interestingly enough, this gentle Spirit would then next lead, lead Jesus in power from that water to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But that's our next message. Here, the heavens are torn open. It's very violent language. Same kind of, it's the same word used when the, when, the te- when the temple, the curtain in the temple tore Jesus' death. The Spirit comes down resting upon Jesus as an authenticating sign from God that this indeed is the man. This is the Messiah. You know, another interesting parallel, speaking of doves, in the symbolism here is, is, is think about the scene of the flood, which is a direct result. What was it? Why, was, why did the flood happen? A direct result of man's sin and wickedness, right? Where every sinner was buried under those waters of judgment. Only escape. The only escape was to be found in the ark where Noah's family was. And the ark, of course, is a type of Christ. And as the ark rested there in those waters of judgment, what do we find? We find a dove flying overhead and lightly landing on the ark and within the ark. But this, this language of the heaven being torn open, it does echo Isaiah 64.1 where the prophet in messianic anticipation, he, said, he cries, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Lord, don't remain silent. And that's an appropriate prayer even to this day as we're praying for souls. Lord, rend the heavens and come down. Let us see Your power. A suggested parallel to this event in the Old Testament among the prophets is that of Ezekiel. He begins his prophetic book. There we find him in a river. And he says he's, the heavens were opened. And he sees a vision of God. And the Lord spoke to him. And he, he told him to go proclaim His Word to His people. And we're told that the Spirit entered Ezekiel as he began his prophetic ministry. And this is a common Old Testament theme in the Scriptures. We 
We see when God calls men to a specific ministry, accompanied with some kind of, it's always accompanied with some kind of public anointing with oil, but it included the Spirit of God coming upon such individuals. A good example is King David. 1 Samuel 16, 13 says, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. The Spirit's presence and descent upon Jesus here is that very same thing taking place. Yes, we find out in John's Gospel that the Spirit was given to Jesus without measure. Jesus was 100% completely filled with the Spirit. And that can be said of no other human being. And of course, that kind of talk tends to prompt the question, if Jesus is already God, why does He need the Holy Spirit? Right? And of course, when we start talking about the functional aspects of the triune God, we, who's responsible for everything that exists, including our own minds, we're already in well over our heads. So we need to be careful about conclusions we draw based upon our fallen reasoning, but we need to search simply what what the Bible teaches. What we do needs to be based. What we, the conclusions we come to need to be based on what the Scripture teaches. And, and the Bibles do. Have, the Bible does have some things it sets forth that give us some indicators, anyway. Some indications how Jesus managed or regulated His own divinity while dwelling here on earth. I'm not going to turn this into a huge rabbit trail, but uh, and it could easily become that. But I just want to quickly think of some some truths that Scripture sets forth that should help shape our thoughts concerning the Lord Jesus. Number one, Luke tells us this about Jesus. That He increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Now, we've got no problem with the stature part, right? But wisdom? Jesus increased in wisdom? How can, how can God, how can Jesus be God and grow in wisdom? I mean, can God grow in wisdom? No. No, he can't. And how is it that there's increased favor with God? Well, that's our first clue. Secondly, Matthew 24, the Silver Brothers' uh, favorite chapter. <laughs> Just kidding. Matthew 24, Jesus speaking of His second coming. He says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. They don't know it. I don't know it. The angels don't know what Jesus says. He doesn't even know it. Not even the Son, but the Father. Now, how can God be God and not know something? Isn't He omniscient? Yes, He's omniscient. It's a good question. And that's our second clue. Thirdly, we have Paul writing to the Philippians. And he says in Philippians 2.6, Speaking of Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. And, I, and I'm quoting from the uh, Holman Christian Standard. I believe that's the, the best translation on that verse. 
Instead, it said, Paul says, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, the living God. That is, that is in taking upon himself human flesh to fulfill his Father's will, Jesus willingly and purposely forfeited his divine attributes. Now, don't ask me to explain that any further. I'd only seek to explain it as far as Scripture has just explained it to us. He emptied Himself while on the earth to the extent of not knowing certain things and to the extent of needing to grow in wisdom and favor. Scripture would seem to indicate that Jesus lived out His life solely through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God governed Jesus' whole life here on earth. I think John Owen, I think John Owen was the first, first one bold enough to assert that the eternal Son's only direct act on his human nature was uniting that humanity to himself in the incarnation. That's it. Every other act upon Christ's human nature was from the Holy Spirit. He suggested that Jesus' divine nature did not communicate anything directly to His human nature. But rather, divinity was mediated to Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm no hypostatic union expert, so, and that's a fancy term for, the, for, the, for this union of Jesus' divine nature and human nature, which just blows our minds to oblivion. And listen, brother, this is holy stuff. Kind of tremble talking about it, but, but it, it, this scene does prompt these kind of questions. I, I don't know if Owen has it 100% right. I don't. All I know is Scripture teaches this. It teaches that Jesus Christ is 100% God and Jesus Christ is 100% man and you figure it out. But, but what Owen asserts sure seems to be the way Scripture presents that union on earth to us. It does. In other words, Jesus didn't go, zap, go about zapping people with His divine power when He was healing and working miracles. He did so through faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the Spirit of God that grew Him in wisdom and favor with God and man. It was the Holy Spirit that enabled Jesus to know what was on the hearts and minds of other people who were in His midst. It was the Spirit of God through Jesus that did every miracle recorded in the Gospels. Jesus said it. He said, it's by the Spirit of God I cast out devils. That's how Scripture presents this relationship to it. It's as though the Holy Spirit is the mediator between deity and Christ's humanity. Jesus willingly emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant. That's how Scripture speaks. Making Himself completely dependent upon the Spirit's aid and help in His life. And brethren, that's exactly what God calls us to do. The same thing. That's how we're to live our lives. Walking by the Spirit. Jesus did it in perfection. Jesus is not telling us to do something we haven't done. Or He's not telling us to do something He hasn't done, rather. 
He's no do as I say, but don't do as I do leader. We got a lot of those. Do what I say because I did it. He lived it out himself. How did Jesus go to the cross and endure the cross? By his own strength? We, we, Clayton just read it, right? Psalm 22. How many times in Psalm 22 is he crying out? Who sustained him? Hebrews gives us the answer. Hebrews 9.14 tells us, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself up without blemish to God, through the eternal Spirit, what overpowered Christ's humanity in that garden the night He's on His face and He's crying out, to My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from Me. That was real. As a man, he's crying out. What sustained him? What gave him grace to submit to the Father's will? The Holy Spirit. When he calls Nathaniel to follow him, Jesus brings to his attention, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's a pictorial illustration or indication of a full and free access of spiritual aid and power given through the Spirit of God. Brethren, don't you find it encouraging that we have access to the very same Spirit that Jesus did? I, I do. This study just all the more encouraged me in that. Shortly after His baptism, Jesus affirms this reality as he as he reads from the scroll there he goes to his hometown nazareth remember the scroll is given to him he reads from the scroll isaiah 61 and he says this the spirit of the lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the the year of the lord's favor the Spirit of God was the anointing and empowering and sending agent. The prophets, they did proclaim one. One of the identifying marks of the Messiah would be just this. He would come in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we especially see that in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 11.1 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. In chapter 32, Isaiah speaks about the Spirit being poured out from on high. Isaiah 42.1 Behold my Spirit, whom I uphold, or my servant rather, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my Spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. It was the Holy Spirit who conceived His humanity. It was the Holy Spirit who taught Him and granted Him wisdom and understanding and favor. It was the Holy Spirit that helped Him lay down His life. And it's here as Jesus stands in these baptismal waters where the heavens are ripped open and the Holy Spirit comes down that we are given this visual divine affirmation of how Jesus will carry out His ministry in divine power. It's through the agency of the Holy Spirit. But we also have at this scene an audible divine affirmation, don't we? John doesn't, just doesn't see something 
supernatural. He hears something supernatural. He hears a voice, we're told in verse 11. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Father speaking from heaven. This happens three times in the Gospels. It happens here. It happens at the Mount of Transfiguration. And if, and if you recall in, in, in John's Gospel, I believe it is, where he's, he, uh, he, he responds to the Father. He's, he's, he's thinking upon His death, which was actually very soon to happen. He's thinking upon it, and he expresses, for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. And the Father responds, I have glorified it, and I'll glorify it again. He speaks that audibly, and the crowd standing by thought it thundered, and some of them thought maybe he was talking to angels. And... But here, here we have the Father speaking from heaven, affirming this to be his Son, in whom God is well pleased. Of course, he's well pleased, because in Jesus, we're told, all the fullness of deity dwelt. All the perfections of God were expressed in a human body through Jesus Christ. It's phenomenal. There's nothing for God to be more joyful about, right? Than His Son. He represents all the perfections of God in human form. Psalm 2 is a prophetic psalm concerning the Lord's anointed King. The Jews understood it to be a messianic psalm. In it, God Himself refers to His anointed King as His own Son. Psalm 2.7, that the anointed one speaking, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Ask of Me, and I will make the nations Your heritage and the ends of the earth Your possession. I mean, it seems to be pointing to this, this event. I mean, The waters of baptism here are the beginning point of, of the spread to the nations. It begins here. And we see it, right? In Jesus' ministry, it was, yes, he was, he was giving food. The breadcrumbs were for the, for the children of Israel. But even in the midst of that, Jesus couldn't contain him. So you got, you got the Samaritans, right? Person after person, Gentiles, he's showing mercy to. It already begins in the, in the ministry of Jesus Christ. The Son of God. That's a very clear statement of deity. To be the Son of God is to be one with God. Now, yes, we're children of God, but we're children of God by adoption. If you recall that text in Galatians 4.4 where Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. But Jesus' sonship was not by adoption. Jesus' sonship was divine DNA as it were. And Jesus is referred to as the Son of God 43 times in the New Testament. Romans 1.3 Concerning His Son, who was de descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. In Colossians, Paul calls Him the, the image of the invisible God by whom all things were created. In Him all the fullness of deity dwelt. 
The Hebrew writer says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. That's pretty clear right there, isn't it? He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Right now, He's doing that. Jesus doesn't hesitate to say, I and my Father are one. Philip, if you've seen me, guess what? You've seen the Father. They are co-equal persons of the triune God along with the Holy Spirit. And we find all three at the banks of the Jordan expressing and bearing witness at John's baptism, announcing what has relatively been a secret up to this point. God is now manifest in the flesh. Mind-blowing. We're used to it. But it was mind-blowing that moment. Still is if you meditate and think upon it. And as such, the Father wants us to know, this is My Son. And with My Son, I'm well pleased. (laughs) Well pleased. He might be standing in the waters of repentance, but I'm well pleased with Him because I know what He's doing. This is an utter, a statement of utter delight. I mean, you recall it. I just I quoted it earlier. The Psalm or uh, Isaiah forty two one. Through Isaiah, the Lord says, "Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights." In fact, I noticed when Clayton was reading Psalm twenty two, in the midst of Jesus' suffering, in the midst of God's judgment, where Jesus is forsaken, what, what words do we hear? The Lord affirming. The statement being said, for in Him He delights. The Father delighting in this. How can, how can God the Father delight in Jesus Christ and pour His judgment out upon Him? That's what happened. So, so here we have the Spirit of God anointing Jesus for ministry. And we have God the Father affirming Him to be His anointed One. His Son. Now, He didn't become God's Son here. He's only being recognized as such and commissioned as such. This is a coronation. This is the King. This is the King. The long-awaited Son of David. God's prophet, priest, and King. But it's also His Son who would, strangely enough, carry out his, the authority of His Father as a lowly, humble servant. You remember maybe perhaps the last week of Jesus' life when He comes into the temple, flips tables, He clears everybody, drives everybody out of there, enraged it, and righteously so, by how they were treating the temple. And then the chief priest, this gets under their skin of course, you got the chief priest and the scribes and you got all the, the elders and they're all coming to Him and they ask, by what authority do you do these things? You're upsetting, the, you're upsetting everything. Come on, what is it? Who are you? What kind of authority do you think you have? Jesus responds, I'll ask you one question. Answer me and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven? Or was it from men? And they, they hymned and they hawed and they, uh, they, they couldn't give him an answer. 
And Jesus responds saying, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, Jesus ties His authority to right here at this baptism. Because it was validated there by the triune God. He essentially tells them that if you can't acknowledge My Father, what My Father and the Holy Spirit have affirmed, i got nothing more to say to you. So in closing, what about you? Do you acknowledge Jesus' authority in your life? Are you well pleased with Jesus? Or do you put His authority to the test in your life? You call Him Lord, but you don't do the things that He says. You know, the end of Psalm 2, that messianic psalm, it says, kiss the Son lest He be angry with you and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. you got these two extremes in Jesus. This lowly servant, this majestic King. Jesus, Jesus is the two extremes you'll ever encounter. Absolute terror that you can't even imagine. And absolute glorious blessedness. Majestic, sweet, lovely. Name your adjective. Anything good you can imagine, it's found in its apex in the person of Jesus Christ. But anything bad you can imagine is found in the same person. And it's those who refuse to take refuge in Him that will, that will face the other side. But He holds out and He says, come to Me. I've come to rescue men. I came to save the world. And what you have to love about Jesus is He, hasn't come, he didn't come with some military force and put cuffs on people and throw them in jail. You're going to comply with Me. No, it's, He doesn't twist anybody's arm. It's an open invitation. Yes, it's a command, but it's an open invitation. Come. Come. I'll set you free. I came into these waters of baptism to identify with guilty, wicked, hardened sinners. And you come to me with all your wickedness and all your hardness and all your brokenness and I will set you free. That's the Savior. That's this One who begins His ministry here in these waters identified by the Holy Spirit and His Father saying, this is My Son. He's come to set men free. He's going after the nations. Ask of Me. And Jesus has asked. And this is, this is the beginning point of it all right here. May you bow before Him. If you don't know Christ, oh, you don't want to sit under all this truth. You don't want to face the living God having known the Gospel when so countless people live and die and never hear one word of truth. You'll be without excuse. What, what, are, you, what are you holding on to? There's nothing more glorious. You're, you're grabbing hold of fool's gold if you think you got something more than you have of Christ, what Christ offers you. Don't, don't reject Him. Don't harden your heart. Today's the day of salvation. He cries, He's saving sinners, even as I speak. Lord Jesus, thank you. Lord, thank you for such a wonderful Savior. Thank you, Lord, for taking our sins upon us. Lord, thank you for. Lord, thinking about the very next 
paragraph. Lord, what You endured for our sakes. Lord, I pray it would break hearts. I pray it would humble people in their pride. Lord, I pray You'd help us to follow You and trust You. Lord, help help us to see all the beautiful diadems and realities that are found in Your Word. Lord, three verses. We could spend messages just in in these three verses alone. Oh, Father, open up our eyes, our hearts. Have mercy upon us. Lord, thank You. Thank You for the Gospel. We praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.